The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good afternoon and a very warm welcome to our lunchtime event on George Barclay, Ireland and Colonialism. My name is Kieran O'Neill. I'm Deputy Director of Trinity Longroom Hub, Trinity's flagship arts and humanities research institute. Trinity has decided to begin a two-year project on our own various colonial legacies. Uh, and much of the press coverage of this initiative over the last few months has typically focused in on the figure of George Barclay a former librarian at Trinity and one of our most famous philosophers and intellectuals. And with that in mind, we are really pleased to be joined by Dr. Tom Jones, his most recent biographer for this event today. Our own colleague, uh, Kenny Pierce, will lead questions in this event for about 30 minutes or so, leaving lots of time for questions from our live audience today. In just a moment, I'm gonna hand over to Dr. Claire Moriarty, a current IRC postdoctoral fellow here at Trinity Longroom Hub and a Berkeley scholar herself, working on early modern philosophy and mathematics. Before doing that, I'd like to remind everybody that this event is being streamed live on Facebook and thus will be recorded. If audience members would like to ask a question, and we really do encourage you to do that, especially in this session, um, please do use the Q&A panel at the bottom of your screen. Over to you, Claire. Unmuting myself. Um, it's a real delight to be able to introduce the two scholars involved in this event. Uh, firstly, the home talent. Kenny Pierce is Usher Assistant Professor in the Philosophy Department here at Trinity. He's also our Head of Department in these very challenging pedagogical and administrative times, so thanks to him for that. He's written on a wide variety of topics in early modern philosophy, where the work of George Berkeley has been a constant theme. His first book examined the role of language in providing a structure for Berkeley's metaphysical system. And it played an important part uh, in shining a light on the novelty of Barclay's uh, linguistic ideas. One of his current book projects explores the religious context of Barclay's philosophical thought. And if I may say so, he's also a wonderful mentor and colleague. Tom Jones is reader and director of research in the School of English at the University of St. Andrews. He's well known for his scholarship and editing of the works of Alexander Pope. Uh, and an earlier book project entitled Pope and Barclay, The Language of Poetry and Philosophy, saw him take on the relationship between these two towers of 18th century writing. I have the pleasure of reading it at the moment. In it, he pursues the idea that Barclay's metaphysical system, which relies on his understanding of the world as an expression of a divine language, provides the best framework for understanding Pope's views on the correct relationship between the aural and semantic aspects, or sound and sense, of poetry. His latest book is an intellectual biography of Barclay, and as a scholar community, scholarly community, we are so lucky to have it. It has been a thrill and honour to read various sections of it as it has made its way towards publication. The last biography of Barclay was written in the 1940s and was, I think it's fair to say, an over-enthusiastic tribute to a man whose moral complexity is increasingly coming into view. Uh, but this is a very different sort of book. Uh, in a time when these issues matter so much, we have a biography that is concerned with Barclay's time in America and ownership of slaves, interested in his relationships with women, and one that applies scrutiny to Barclay's views of the Irish people, noting the haste with which he arrived at the polemical ideas in his political treatise, The Queerest. His Barclay is treated with great care, but unpatronizingly, 
And in his book, we get an account that doesn't treat anything but the harshest treatment of vulnerable people as a great indulgence. I'm so looking forward to this discussion today. Over to you, Kenny. Thank you very much. Um, thank you, Dr. Moriarty, for that introduction. And, and thank you, Dr. Jones, for joining us today. Let's start with the basics. Uh, who was George Barclay and what was his connection to Trinity? Thanks uh, for the question, Kenny, and, and thanks also to Kieran and, and Claire for the, for the generous introductions. It's a, a real privilege to be um, involved in an event at, at, at Trinity to, 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 um, to talk about this book. So as, as Kieran said, um, George Barclay was a, a philosopher. I think we primarily relate to Barclay as a philosopher. We, we first of all think of him as a, as a philosopher. Um, he's more, more broadly uh, an intellectual as well. In philosophy, he's most strongly associated with, with the doctrine of immaterialism. That is that behind the, the, the perceptions that we have, um, there are no underlying material things that kind of hold those perceptions together and give them a unity. We simply, we simply just have um, perceptions or ideas of things in the world. Um, that's that's the, the kind of striking um, philosophical doctrine with which he's most um, strongly associated. But his writing on that subject is is mostly done by the 17 teens, very early in his life with another four decades still, still to go. And after that point, he's, he, he writes on a broad variety of subjects on, on the economy of, of Britain and of Ireland, um, on the philosophy of mathematics, as, as, as Claire knows uh, very well and has written well about um, herself, um, on physics, on Christianity and, and so on. So he's, he's, he's an intellectual of quite broad scope. Um, and he's also very active for a, for a philosopher. Some philosophers sit in their, sit in their studies and, and do little else. Barclay was always uh, quite an outgoing philosopher. So he's a, he's a tourist of, of Europe. Um, he's, a, he's a colonial and a, and a missionary and an educator in his time in, 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 in Newport in Rhode Island. And he's a churchman, he's the, he's the Dean of Derry and much more actively so, he's, he's the Bishop of Cloyne in, in the Church of Ireland. Um, so he's, he's, he's quite a few, a few things. Um, if I can come back to the part of your question, Kenny, about, about Barclay's particular associations uh, with Trinity. So he was a, he was a fellow um, and uh, again, as Kieran has said, a, a librarian for, for just a year, I think, in, in 1709 to 10. He held other uh, roles in, in the college. He was, he was a lecturer in Hebrew and a, and a, and a proctor from the set for, for just a year in, 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 the, in the early 1720s, um, as well as being a junior dean and, and junior proctor. He spent quite a lot of the time from 1713 to 1724 not doing his job um, in Trinity College Dublin, in fact applying for various periods of leave of absence so he could publish works in London or tour Italy or, 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 or do other important thing, things that were important for him. So a, a long and ongoing association with the college, um, but one that was interrupted. And I think one of the uh, one of the small nuggets of new information that I've managed to uncover as, as I was researching this, this biography was that uh, we knew that um, when he was Bishop of Cloyne in 1741, Barclay was considered for the role of, uh, of Vice-Chancellor of, of Trinity College and he turned it down. We've known that for quite a long time. But it turns out, again, from a, a letter from a friend of, of Barclay's from 1734, just after he'd become Bishop of Cloyne, that he was already then being considered um, for the role of, of vice chancellor, and um, we, we don't know exactly why he didn't he didn't take up the role at that point, um, but he was he was clearly in the minds of people associated with the college as, as a potential um, senior senior member 
even in the later stages of, of his career. So if there's just maybe one, one more thing I can say about, about Barclay's association with, with Trinity or his relationship to Trinity. And, and that's, that's, I think that um, he doesn't just hold formal roles as a fellow, as librarian and so on, but he, he drinks in the institutional atmosphere of, of, of Trinity um, in his early days. I think really, really takes on board the, the sense of hierarchy, uh, of, of discipline, and of community building. Not, not those things um, because they're necessarily just good in themselves, but those things because they're essential to having a community, at least in the way that the, the statutes of Trinity um, College were, 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 were redrafted in the 17th century and, and in other, other ways of thinking about society. So Barclay kind of drinks in that sense of, 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 of organisation and subordination in order to produce an intellectual community. And he expresses that in various ways uh, throughout his life. Uh, what, what one way I, I, I think we'll get to um, later in, in our conversation is, is when he attempts to establish his own college and he takes with him um, to North America three um, fellows of, of Trinity College. So I think the, the ethos of Trinity, the structure of Trinity, it's, it's a way of organising itself as an institution, uh, the kind of community it, it creates. Um, for him as a student is something that, that marks him as he, as he goes through the rest of his life and, 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 and attempts to put into practice um, the, the great intellectual um, schemes that he, that he has. As you mentioned, Barclay, uh, he traveled actually quite a lot in the, in the world and um, with these various educational schemes as well as tourism and, and whatnot. So in, in 1729, a few years after uh, leaving Trinity, he sails to the Rhode Island colony in America. Uh, what was that about? What was he doing there? Well, Barclay um, reveals in, in a letter to his friend, John, John Percival, uh, later um, Earl of Egmont, that from the, the, the really quite, the, quite early 1720s, he fixed upon an idea of how he wanted to pass the rest of his days. And that was in a kind of um, learned academical retirement. So he wanted to establish a college uh, and retire to it with a group of, of, of like-minded intellectuals and live a life of um, intellectual religious dedication and taste and elegance as well. I think it's important to remember with Barclay that he often, he often thinks that aesthetic pleasures should accompany um, intellectual pleasures. They're also high human pleasures for him. And um, he wants to do this on Bermuda. Bermuda is the place he settles on for his um, university, for his college. Curious, a curious choice, but for a variety of reasons. Well, he never actually gets to Bermuda. Let me say a bit more, more about that. Um, so what what Barclay wants to do, he has got two purposes really in, in establishing this um, college on Bermuda. And one is to better supply the churches of the American colonies with uh, uh, preachers and servants of God. So this is a, one way, one function of the, of the university on Bermuda is to um, improve the infrastructure of the Church of, Church of England in the Anglican persuasion in um, North America, in the colonies. The other thing that he wants to do is to educate Native Americans um, in Christianity. 
on Bermuda and then return those, um, those people who've been educated to Master of Arts level, return those people to their communities uh, and, and make them proselytes for uh, the, the Church of England, for the Anglican Protestantism uh, on, on, on the North American mainland. In a, in a, in a kind of afterthought, really, in, in, in Barclays, uh, proposals for his university on Bermuda. He also says that he has an interest in, in educating the black population um, of uh, North America. That may or may not be because he identified a certain pot of money that he, he thought he could access if he expressed an interest in, in, in educating um, the, the, the black and enslaved um, community uh, of North America. So this was Barclay's big scheme. To found a college, it would have been called St Paul's College, it would have been stocked with fellows from Trinity. Um, it would have taught the fine arts as well as um, uh, the, 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 the liberal arts uh, and sciences. Uh, and it would have educated Native Americans and the sons of, of, of white planters in, in North America. Um, it would have been funded by a grant of about £20,000 from the, from the British government that was going to be funded itself from the sale of Crown lands uh, on St Kitts, um, the Caribbean island that, that, that um, uh, Britain had, had um, got access to after the PT of Utrecht in 1713. So that's what, that's what he's doing. He's given the grant, um, he sets sail um, with a small, a small group of uh, friends and, and, and his newly acquired wife, um, Anne Forster Barclay, he stops briefly at Virginia on his way um, towards uh, uh, Rhode Island, where he's decided to, to, to uh, settle whilst he waits for the funds for this college. Um, and he stays there in Newport, Rhode Island for two years waiting for the money, waiting for the £20,000 grant that never comes. It just never comes. And eventually he, he, he comes back um, uh, to London. Perhaps I can just say, if you, if you if you give me the time, uh, Kenny, just a, a couple of things about about what Barclay was doing in those in those two years where he's he's just, you might think he was just twiddling his thumbs. Um, uh, certainly not. Uh, he was doing a, a variety of different things. Um, there's a tradition that Barclay spent quite a lot of time visiting the Narragansett people, the, the Native American um, uh, community closest to, to Newport and Rhode Island, just just south and studying their ways of life. It, it, it became to me clear, in, at least in comparative terms, that, that Barclay had not really paid much attention to Native American forms of life uh, in his time in Rhode Island. Quite a lot of people prior to Barclay had written about um, the Native American communities of, of that part of, of the Eastern seaboard uh, with a lot of um, attention and observation and reported their, 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 their observations. Roger Williams and Joseph-Francois Lafiteau are the two most obvious examples. And given the amount of information that was available to Barclay already and, and the opportunities for observation that he had, he doesn't really give any strong impression in anything that he wrote or said afterwards of having paid much attention to, to, to Native American lifeways when he was, when he was in, in America. So I don't, I don't think he was doing an, an awful um, lot of that. He did write a book, a substantial book um, called Alkifron, a set of seven philosophical dialogues containing a lot of material and, and um, an apology for Christianity more generally. Um, 
And he also um, probably furthered his concern for the, for, for the baptism of enslaved people um, in, in, in North America. Um, a historian uh, um, uh, from North America called Travis Glasson showed about, about 10 years ago that it was quite likely that um, a legal opinion um, from 1731 called the York Talbot opinion, which stated that um, slavery was compatible with baptism in all of the British territories uh, at home and, and overseas. Um, Travis Glasson has argued quite, quite convincingly, I think, that Barclay and or his circle of friends in um, New England at the time, at the very end of the 1720s and early 1730s, commissioned that opinion, um, asked for that opinion to be given so that they could confer the missionary work uh, amongst the enslaved um, black population of, of New England. That's a very good thing, of course, for the uh, eternal prospects of, of that community, if you're, if you're a believer in, in, in um, uh, Christianity. But it has been noted that the, the York Talbot opinion actually set back uh, the nascent abolitionist uh, movement. Some, some Quaker communities in the 17, 20, late 1720s were starting to organize um, uh, around abolition uh, of, of, of slavery. Um, and the York Talbot opinion was one thing which, which kind of put a break on, um, on that nascent abolitionist movement. So Barclay was in, involved in, in that as well. Thank you. Uh, one of the things that I do think is really uh, striking and interesting and useful about your book is the way that it gets all this gives all this context to the way other people are thinking about these things about the native population and the enslaved population, and that we can't dismiss uh, the things Barclay says is just a product of his time because there were alternative pictures in the time. One of the things Barclay seems so one of the reasons Barclay seems so excited about America is his idea that Native American, that the Native American people are a blank slate to be written on. And so he just can't see that there's already culture and religion there, um, which is in stark contrast to many of his contemporaries. Um, so, so after all of this, uh, he comes back to Ireland, right? And in, in 1734, he becomes Bishop of Cloyne. And he's, he's very involved in a lot of um, social and political and economic projects as a, a bishop. Are those activities in Ireland uh, related at all to the, the kind of activities he was engaged in in America? Thanks, Kenny. Uh, another really, really important question in, in, in thinking about Barclay. I think quite often, um, thinkers about Barclay have, have regarded his time in North America as a, as a, as a strange outlier, a, a sort of uh, um, a curiosity or a, 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 a whimsy in, in his career. But I think there are really important ways in which we can, we can tie it together um, with, with Barclay's other activities. And I use a phrase which, which may come across a, a little strong, um, but I think it's probably appropriate. And that's, that's the idea of missionary Anglicanism. Um, we, we, we can think of Barclay as, as being a missionary Anglican, as, as, as exercising throughout his life, really, um, from, from before his, his time trying to establish a university in uh, North America or in the islands. Um, we, can, we can think of him as, 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 as acting as, as a missionary for um, Anglicanism. Um, I mean, just to, to, to divert and give a, a, one example of, of an earlier moment in Barclay's career where that might be true is his um, time as chaplain to the Earl of Peterborough, who was um, 
going to Italy, to Sicily in particular, in, the seven, in 1713, 1714, uh, as part of the broader diplomatic um, activity around the, around the Treaty of Utrecht um, and the, at the end of the, the War of Spanish Succession. Uh, Barclay accompanies Peterborough on, on, on this journey as his chaplain, and he preaches while he's there at, um, at Livorno. There's an English factory, um, a, a merchant colony, that is, uh, at Livorno in Italy. And Barclay preaches there, and he preaches on, on charity. And his main way of describing charity is as um, commercial and mercantile activity, supplying other people's needs and wants through being a, through being a merchant. And that's a charitable act. And this, this merchant, the fact that there was a, a preacher at this merchant colony in Livorno was actually a considerable act of, um, of, of diplomatic chutzpah on the part of, of Queen Anne um, to, to place a, 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 an officially sanctioned Anglican Protestant preacher on Italian soil in a colony um, in a, in a, in a, in a um, uh, Florentine state that was really in religious matters at the mercy of the, of the Inquisition. Was, was kind of very forward in terms of religious politics, very quite, quite aggressive, one might say. So I think Barclays, even in the 17-teens, going overseas, really trying to push um, uh, Protestant Christianity, Anglican Christianity to, to communities overseas. He's doing that in, in North America. That's one of the things he's trying to do. Um, he's also doing that when he moves, for the first time in his life, to a Catholic majority area of Ireland. Before, when he's lived in Ireland before, he's lived in, um, he's lived in Dublin, uh, which was around about 70% majority um, Protestant at Barclays' time. So he's, he's going out into, into a different part of the, of the island um, and engaging with a, with a, a different um, fraction or a different part of the, of, of, of the, of the population. So, Missionary Anglicanism might not be a, a, a bad way of thinking about what's going on here. And that's not to say that Barclay isn't interested in doing good. I think he's fundamentally interested and driven by doing good for the people of, of his diocese, for the people of, of Cloyne. Uh, and as you were saying, Kenny, that's partly to do with, with economic reform. Um, so what the texts in which Barclay deals most, most closely with, with economic reform are those that, that, that Claire mentioned earlier. Three slim volumes of rhetorical questions, over 500 rhetorical questions, um, known as the queerest. And in, in that series of short books, Barclay basically sets out a programme for economic renewal in Ireland, which involves um, the, the, the upper part of the people, as he calls them, the, the gentry, the educated, <clears throat> mostly Protestant, changing their tastes so that they give up drinking French wine and importing silk and they buy Irish linen and they drink Irish cider. And that in its turn will stimulate um, the economy or provide jobs for the Irish peasantry who will, the mostly Catholic Irish peasantry, who will therefore um, acquire um, higher and better appetites. They will want to be better dressed. They will want to live more, uh, more, more uh, distinguished and respectable uh, material lives. Um, and so both of these different parts of the population will experience improvement through this, um, through this program of kind of um, buying local. Um, and Barclay suggests a land bank, a national bank based on, on uh, the value of land, issuing notes on the value of land, 
is the main engine to support the, inc the increased level of activity in the, in the economy. So that's one, one big proposal he has um, um, during his time in Cloyne. And another thing that he's doing in Cloyne, again, really focused on doing good for, for, his, uh, for the people around him, no matter what, what, what their denomination, is his, his work in, in health. Um, so there was a, a, a really brutal um, winter and famine in, in the years of 1740 to 1741, which could have, could have taken about a third of the population of, of the island. Um, so an ex extremely cruel time and the, 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 the famine was followed up by an epidemic of dysentery. And Barclay, partly through his time in, in America, had, had discovered um, this drink, which is um, water with pine resin uh, diffused into it. And he, he says drinking this is, is very good for you. It's very good for, for curing dysentery, which is called at the time the bloody flux. Turns out that this, this drink, um, tar water, um, has uh, mildly antiseptic properties. So it probably was a lot better for you than, than, than drinking um, gin and, um, and uh, 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 dirtier water. Um, so he publishes some case histories of, of treatments. He, he gets his friend Tom Pryor, who's um, at the centre of the, the, the Dublin Society, later to become the Royal Dublin Society, to promote this, this cure of drinking tar water. Um, and in his book from 1744, Cyrus, um, he starts to relate um, the drinking of tar water to some of his other metaphysical ideas about, um, uh, 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 about inspiriting and inspiring people, making people more godly. Um, that's a, a, a rather idiosyncratic thing that we might pick up later. So Barclay has these, has these big projects for doing good. And he really is, I think, I think to, 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 to the best of his ability, doing good for the people around him. But if we also look at other writings of, of an and interest of Barclay's in, in the time that he was Bishop of Cloyne, he's very insistent on um, the clergy of the established church, the Church of Ireland, retaining their civil authority. So it's completely against um, widening the toleration or disestablishing. You know, that's, he's, he's really in favour of, of, the, of the established church retaining its, its civil authority. And if you look at the documents associated with Barclay's um, manner of administering his diocese, his way of being a bishop, He's both quite disciplinarian in, in the way that he wants to uh, create a sort of militant set of, of, of clergy around him. And he is also um, encouraging, as, as, as you would expect, encouraging his local clergy to engage in the conversion of the native Catholic population. That's, that's the goal. So behind um, this drive or along with this drive for health and for economic improvement is, is also a drive for spiritual improvement. And that means Gently, perhaps, and by persuasion, but one should turn one's conversation, should take um, topics that everyone agrees on and gradually turn them towards um, Protestant truths. This is Barclay's advice to his local clergy. So I think in different ways and without trying to belittle Barclay's energy and his success as a, as a social reformer and as an educationalist and as, a, and as, a, and as a, an amateur physician, there is still this missionary Anglican desire to, 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 to um, for people's own good, to try to bring them round um, to, to the church. 
Thank you. Yeah, I, I think one of the most difficult things for us kind of thinking about Barclay today is he, he talks so much about promoting the good of, of other people and about charity toward them and especially toward the, the poor. Um, but then his idea of what that looks like often doesn't align well with ours. Um, and that it can be very difficult. Yeah, I think that the, the, the willingness that, that Barclay has to, to stratify and, and see um, uh, ranks and classes and, and, and subordination so on is, is, is not particularly um, uh, different from, 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 from many other slightly conservatively minded, um, but, but also reform minded people, people of his age. Um, uh, and I, I think one, in, in some ways, Barclay um, does himself no favours because he's clearly such a radical thinker in many ways. Immaterialist thesis is a very radical thesis. If one looks at the, the queerest, one sees a lot of very radical propositions for economic reform or radical ways of thinking about what money is, what an economy is, and so on. So one, one is in, in engaging with Barclay kind of primed for radical solutions, but then one encounters these, these very deeply ingrained and, and socially conservative views as well. Um, so he's an he's a, he's a, he's a interesting combination of, of impulses. Yeah, so this is a good uh, segue to my, my next question here. We've, we mentioned kind of at the beginning that uh, Barclay's mainly remembered for this philosophy of immaterialism. We've been talking about a lot of um, things that might seem not very closely connected with that, perhaps not even very philosophical to, to many people. But is there a connection between these kinds of activities that Barclay's engaged in in America and Ireland and his uh, philosophical thought, particularly immaterialism? Thanks. Thanks for that question, Kenny. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a really vital um, question. Um, and, and one of the things that drove me to to um, think of writing this book in the first place, uh, Luce's biography that Claire mentioned from the 1940s is very careful to separate out philosophical discussion from biography in a way that I'm afraid I, I found quite unsatisfying. So wanting to bring um, Barclay's full and rich life together with his philosophy was what was one um, uh, reason for me wanting to write this book. Um, and as I said earlier, it can seem that Barclay expresses his immaterialist philosophy quite fully by 1713, and then just does other things for 40 years. So other things that might not be very closely related at all. But I think we can draw some, some pretty interesting uh, uh, connections between this immaterialist philosophy and the rest of Barclay's uh, um, activity. I think they're to do uh, with, with God, with a particular kind of God that Barclay believes in and the political implications of, of, of that God and, 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 and the, the, the kind of universe that, 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 that Barclay's God creates. Um, so I might just have to take a tiny, a tiny um, detour into, into Barclay's immaterialism here to, to, to explain what I mean. Um, it, 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 so Barclay's sense of, 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 uh, of the phenomenal world is that um, it is just that, it's, it's phenomenal. There aren't any things, there aren't any material things underlying the phenomena we experience and, and, and perceive. Um, so that means that our ordinary stuff in our world, our tables and our chairs and books and horses and carriages and so on, um, seem to be at risk of disappearing if there's no one around to, to perceive them, uh, to experience them, they, 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 don't, they don't exist. Uh, and of course, various uh, 
more or less crude versions of, of this um, conundrum uh, are quite strongly associated with, with, with Barclay over the course of his, uh, his reception over the last 300 years. And quite often when, when, when um, people deal with Barclay's immaterialism, they say, ah, oh, this is where God comes in. Uh, God is there in Barclay's immaterialism to prevent the embarrassment of objects occasionally appearing and disappearing and then, and then rearing and so on. Because God is always there. God created everything. God wills everything into existence. And so in some sense, um, both perceives as well as willing all objects across the entire course of, of, of um, universal history. That's, that's fine. I think that's, that's true in terms of the way in which Barclay sets out his argument in some of his texts. God, the, the, the role that God plays is, is, is kind of introduced as it were. But I think it rather puts back to front Barclay's own um, motivations, his own experience. Because he says that he, want, that he comes to immaterialism as a way of showing people how dependent they are on God. So I, I come to it this way instead. Barclay has a very, very strong, I think, religious um, and spiritual experience in his, uh, in his early life. He feels very closely, very, very near to, near to the centre of himself, um, that God really is there and sustaining the entire universe and giving people their, their entire world. He often cites the, uh, the, the text from St Paul that God is the, that in which we live and move and, and have our being. Uh, so Barclay experiences that as a, as a kind of really fundamental truth. How do you convince other people of that truth? That everything in our universe is dependent upon God, that God's will is necessary for us having stable phenomenal experiences, that God's will is necessary for the sun rising and setting, for our advanced science based on all of our predictive capacities, given the regularities of nature. How do you persuade people to see their dependence on God um, for um, that regular universe. I think immaterialism is the answer to that question. You, sh you show people that, of course, there isn't really any material thing underlying their you know, I I impressions, their ideas. They're dependent upon God for uh, the regularity, the order uh, of, their, of their universe. So that's the kind of God Barclay has, and, and I think we should, we should um, think of that as something where Barclay starts, um, that, that, that God. Um, Barclay expresses this as a matter of dependence. Um, another way of expressing it that sometimes he uses is, is that of being subject to a law. He says it's a very universal relationship. Um, it's, the, it's the widest possible relationship in, in, in the world, that of subject to law. Um, so I think Barclay has a very strong sense that spirits, that is people, angels, are subjects to law, the law being the expression of a higher will, just as physical bodies are subject to the laws of nature. Um, and if we want to have a phenomenal world that's organized, if we want to be able to be confident that if I will something, my body will carry it out, um, or that the sun will rise uh, at certain times and so on, then we have to accept that there is a higher will. We have to accept our subordination. And here I think you'll start to see where, where I'm thinking about this in political terms. As I said at the, the start, um, Barclay thinks of subordination um, in the collegial uh, environment, um, collegiate environment, as a, as, a, as a necessary thing for there being an orderly universe. He, th he thinks the same very generally, I think, that subordination um, 
produces order, it's necessary for their, for their being order. And again, this, is, this doesn't make him uh, particularly surprising. Um, there's a, a long history of writing about the great chain of being as a, as a, as a kind of structuring metaphor for social life um, in the 18th century. Many people held this, this view that hierarchy and subordination was necessary um, to social order. But I think Barclay takes that from his religious um, experience and he sees it in other parts of life. Um, he sees it, for example, in marriage. Um, so um, uh, to, to, to give an example here, um, he, he produced an anthology of improving literature for women in the 17 teens. It was a book called The Ladies Library. Um, and that deals with various topics that are of importance or deemed of importance to, to women uh, in the 17 teens. And one of those is, of course, marriage. And Barclay is excerpting um, a text on marriage for that anthology. And he, and he adds a little bit in saying that breach of the marriage vows is, is a sin and like any sin um, brings about eternal punishment. So he writes, he, he writes uh, very strongly about our, 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 our obligation, um, particularly when we, when we swear an oath, like, like taking the marriage vow to a superior, in this case, uh, as the 18th century conceived it, a husband being superior um, to the wife, um, and there being a, 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 a kind of crime involved in, in, in going against subordination. And we can also see that in, in Barclay's thinking about slavery, um, servitude and slavery, uh, and he, he blurs the terms when he's writing about um, uh, uh, the subject in, in The Queerist. Um, uh, subordination in terms of being temporarily or perhaps for the course of one's life deprived of one's um, liberties can still be um, a good if it produces a greater good of social order through subordination. So I think that, that this um, uh, it's, it's quite a it's quite a detour I've just taken us on from 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 Barclay's immaterialism as a way of showing our dependence on God to uh, a, a strong sense of dependence, subordination, and so on in the structure of social life more generally. But I think that's the, that's the connection I've tried to, to draw out. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, we've got some great questions coming in from the, the audience here that we wanna save time for. So I will just ask you one more, uh, one more question before we turn over to that. Um, so Barclay died in, in 1753. What has his subsequent legacy been uh, in Ireland and beyond and how should we remember him today? Uh, thank you again, again Kenny. Um, one way of, of course we can remember Barclay is as uh, the, the kind of preeminent figure in a tradition of um, Irish philosophy and um, even in using the phrase Irish philosophy we, we have to recognize David Berman, uh, a, a, a former colleague at, at, at Trinity uh, and, and uh, great contributor to, to Barclay studies over, over decades, who, who I think has done a, a, a more than most, more than anyone to um, establish a tradition of Irish philosophical thought and to, and to, to note Barclay's place in it. So there's a, there's a contribution to um, um, philosophical tradition in a broad sense and particularly in, a, in an Irish context. One thing I'd like to highlight there is, is um, an influence on Burke that, that has been, Edmund Burke, that has, has been noted, but uh, 
as, 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 as Kenny, a uh, great expert in, in Barclay's um, thinking about language knows, um, Barclay had expressed what is often called, uh, again, a shorthand, the emotive theory of meaning, the idea that you can use words without signifying a clear and distinct idea um, in your own mind. Um, really interesting, really important idea. And I think if we look six, seven years after, after Barclay's death to Edmund Burke's um, philosophical inquiry into the origin of our ideas of the sublime and the beautiful, we see Burke talking about how uses of words don't always have to bring clear and distinct ideas into, into our minds in order to be effective, certainly not in, in literary texts, um, but also in geographical description, for example, if someone describes a, a cityscape, we don't see every street in our, in our minds. So we can see Barclay's um, philosophical legacy in Ireland uh, and beyond. One of the beyonds, one of the big beyonds there is, is I think, American philosophy um, through, I, I think, um, transcendentalism, but also pragmatism. Um, both William James and, and Charles Sanders Peirce thought of Barclay as a progenitor of, of the pragmatic um, point of view. That's a, a topic I would have liked to have written about, uh, would have liked to have made myself expert enough to write about in, in this biography, but it, it couldn't be done um, in time. Um, so in, in American thought, Barclay has a, a big influence. He's also very influential in the American university system. He might fail to establish his college on Bermuda, but he leaves books after that project um, falls. He leaves books both to Yale and to Harvard. And he has a close friend in America called Samuel Johnson, a, a different Samuel Johnson from the English one, um, who later becomes the first president of King's College, uh, New York, which is now Columbia University. And they exchange a lot of ideas on, on education. Uh, and um, Samuel Johnson shared one of Barclay's letters on um, how to found an educational institution with um, Benjamin Franklin when he was closely involved in, in establishing the University of Pennsylvania. So Barclay's diffuse influence on American education is, 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 is huge. Um, I think we can remember Barclay as an improver, as I was saying, he was trying to do good, particularly at Cloyne. And that places him amongst um, a whole range of uh, improving um, clergymen and, and landlords that the historian Toby Barnard has, has, has written so well and so fully uh, about. We might, we might rem remember him uh, like that. Um, but I, I'm very uh, gratified by what Kenny said earlier that, um, that the, the biography tries to place Barclay's thinking about issues like slavery or um, uh, Native American cultural life um, into the context of what other people were, were thinking at the time. Um, that was, was certainly something that I was trying to do. Um, we, we do, I guess, have to ask ourselves um, what Barclay's picture of the good was and how much of it we still share, how much of it we still feel able to share in us, as, as, even if we recognize that he was fully motivated by doing good, how much of his picture of the good um, do we share? Um, as I, I was saying, he, he gets, fairly close to um, colouring over, if not apologising, for the possibility of, of, of slavery as, as an institution that produces public goods. He also talks, uh, he, he is celebrated as an ecumenical um, uh, uh, thinker and activist, but his, his, his comments on the um, inherent and in inherited sloth and dirtiness of, of the uh, uh, native Irish, as, as, as he calls them, 
are, are, are really quite shocking. And, and even if he's looking to improve and transform, do we accept those, the, 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 the premises from which Barclay was starting? So I think if we're remembering um, a, a philosophical and a social legacy, we, we don't have to give up being judgmental altogether. We, 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 we might want to offer tempered judgments, tempered by our sense of what other people at Barclay's time were, were thinking and doing, but, but I think we should also um, feel free to make those kinds of judgments. Thank you very much. Um, we'll turn now to some, uh, some questions from the audience. And um, the first question that we had was about the three fellows you mentioned who, who accompanied Barclay. I've put this, this famous image up here. This is an, uh, a portrait by, by John Smeebert that's uh, held in the, the Yale University um, Art Gallery. Uh, of of the folks leaving to to go to America to um, found Barclays College, um, do we know do we know anything about the this is Barclay on the right of course do we know anything about the other folks in this this picture and in particular the three TCD fellows who accompanied Barclay? Now uh, this this really is a. Um... A test that is beyond me at the moment, because I will I will not be able to to to, to name uh, as as we as we go across uh, the, the the image. I'm I'm afraid. Um, uh, I think the surnames of the three fellows who were to accompany Barclay were um, uh, Rogers, Williams, and uh, and Thompson. Uh, and I'm afraid I forget, um, other than being fellows, what, uh, what they were at the time. I think they are the three, the three uh, men standing. The, 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 the fellow um, sitting at the table and transcribing, I, don't, is, I think is John Baron Wainwright. So I, I mentioned someone who, who, in whose correspondence about Barclay, we, we, we discovered that he was considered for vice chancellor in 1734. Um, that was John Baron Wainwright. So I, I believe he's a, a friend who remains um, uh, in um, England and Ireland, but is seen there kind of with the group as um, uh, as, uh, as as a scribe and, and, and supporter and so on. The two female, uh, one of the reasons I really wanted this cover, uh, this book, this, this image as, as a cover image um, for, for the book uh, is because it, it places Barclay's wife, Anne Forster Barclay, right at the, at the center of the image. Um, and as, as much as the the, the time in, in Rhode Island would have been a time where he was he was meeting and, and social mixing with these people. We know from Barclay's correspondence that um, his, his male company were quite often shooting off to Boston because it was a bit more fun than being on the farm at Whitehall with Barclay. So they were often going, going to, to the emerging metropolitan centres of, 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 of North America, whereas Barclay was more consistently located on the farm. And he would have been with his wife. That his wife would have, would have been his main company. Um, and I, I thought this is a really impo important thing uh, to, to think about is, is, is the, the, um, the way in which um, female company um, leaves a mark on, on some of Barclay's thinking, his activism, his writing even. Um, I think there are some hints of Anne Foster Barclay um, and she had quite a strong satirical imagination, as, as, as can be shown from some of the documents that she left behind her. I think some of the satirical character portraits in, in Barclay's book, Alcifron, might derive from observations that Anne was making or, or thoughts that she, that she had, even sketches that she had 
produced. Just little touches of, of her work there. But I, I apologize for not being able to give a, a better answer on, um, uh, on what the, the, the three fellows of, of, of Trinity are particularly characterized by and, and, and why they were selected, selected out of the group. Thank you. Um, so let's see. Um, next, we have um, a question about uh, Barker's project to educate slaves. Did that did the, the project of, of educating enslaved people meet um, with resistance from from slave owners in Barclay's time? Um, that can't really be answered in the sense that um, because the project never came to fruition, there was there was there was never a college established. There was never ne never um, uh, um, an intake of of, of black st students. Um, so we, we can't know that there was um, a, an objection there. There almost certainly would have been because we know that there are, there are objections even to, to baptizing slaves. So how enslaved people, so how, how could one um, draw um, from the primarily enslaved or largely enslaved um, black population of, of North America to create a student body if a, if a planter with it, with, uh, who, who owns people is unwilling even to have them baptized because he's heard that, that, this, that this might have the consequence of, of, of emancipating or, or, or manumitting a slave. Um, so I'm sure uh, there would have been objections. Um, there was a, a literature, as one might have anticipated, um, arguing for the equality of people of, of all races in the eyes of God in, 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 the, in the later 17th and early 18th centuries. Um, but that view often coexists somehow with the with upholding um, temporal social social distinctions. Um, so yes, it's, I, I, I don't think it's possible actually to um, answer that, that question, but given the, the degree of opposition to baptizing slaves, given that the Barclay and his circle probably commissioned this York Talbot opinion to insist that baptism and slavery were compatible states, there would have been an objection. Um, there were objections to the idea of, of, of educating, um, well, for Barclay's proposal to educate Native Americans. Um, the objection there was largely that there already existed two or three institutions um, on the Eastern seaboard dedicated to that purpose. So um, uh, Yale had its own Indian college as it was called, and so too did William and Mary um, University. Uh, and so there was a, a certain sense in which Barclay was uh, replicating existing efforts. Um, it was also pointed out that he would have had to um, kidnap um, Native American infants and, and, and ship them 300 nautical miles to, to Bermuda for their education and then ship them uh, back again, which was neither practical nor very consistent with, with, with liberty. Um, the next question we have here is about the, the penal laws and um, about the uh, kind of attitudes or the treatment by government of both Presbyterians, so non-Anglican Protestants and of, of Catholics. Uh, what do we know about Barclay's views on, on that subject? Thank you. Um, a, a great question, and one I probably can't go quite as, as far on as, as I would like to or should be able to. Um, so Barclay was in, in favor of finding ways, he expressed 
plans for ways which might enable um, people to circumnavigate some aspects of, of, of the penal law. So, for example, Catholic, you had to be a Protestant to study at Trinity College Dublin. Um, but Barclay said, well, why not? Why not make it possible for Catholic students to, to study at the college? Why not? Seeing as listening is merely passive and doesn't require an active engagement of faith, why, uh, surely Catholic students can, can listen to the Protestant um, sermons that they're required to, and they can attend uh, the university. And that would be, um, that would be much better than uh, Catholic students being sent to France where they imbibe all of the prejudices of a foreign education and, and so on. So Barclay was looking for ways around uh, what he thought were the more um, pernicious and, and, and kind of counterproductive effects of, 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 um, uh, of, of penalising in that civil sense. I don't think, uh, I suspect that Kenny and I have a slightly different view here, but um, I, I don't think that Barclay is too keen on, on admitting any more toleration for, um, for, 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 for Catholic uh, religious organisation in, in Ireland. He knows it, it exists, he, he, he writes to um, uh, the, the Catholic clergy in, in, his, in his late 1749 um, publication, A Word to the Wise, and he, and, he, and he recognizes the influence that the, that the Catholic clergy have over, over, their, over their parishioners. Um, but he is focused on increasing the institutional hold of the Church of Ireland in Cloyne and in other places. It's not really, it's not in his interests to, 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 um, to, uh, to, to relax um, uh, that side of, of, of penal legislation. Um, I think he has similar views about, about the, the, the more radical dissenting sects and the, and the Presbyterian um, sects of, of, of Protestant Christianity as well. And in that they're certainly about Quakerism, he, you know, he's not really interested in extending the degree of toleration or excusing Quakers from paying, um, from, from paying tithes, for example. Um, Barclay certainly admires Jesuits, um, for example, for their um, uh, hardiness and for their willingness to go amongst different communities and, and, and preach. So he's, he's capable of seeing good things in, in, in certain wings of, of the Catholic Church, but I think he's, he's, he's still quite antagonistic from an institutional point of view. Uh, thank you. The, the next question we have here, and I think we probably have time for just one more, is about um, Barclay's relationship to uh, Jonathan Swift. Um, and in particular, whether uh, whether Swift's portrayal in Gulliver might have uh, influenced Barclay's um, conception of, of colonialism, uh, but of course, there's a, a lot more to be said about about Barclay and Swift than that. Oh, wow! What what a what a, what a great uh, question. Um, they knew each other from the 17 teens when 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 um, Bar Barclay arrived in London and um, Swift. Um, helped introduce people at Barclay to various um, important people in London in, in 17 teens, and also helped to promote his, his Bermuda scheme, as it was called. Uh, he, he said that Barclay was a, an absolute philosopher with respect to his career, and he wanted to give it all up and, 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 and travel overseas. Um, on the issue of colonialism, I, I find Gulliver's Travels, which I teach every year to our, our first year class, uh, largely a really biting in, indictment of um, particularly of, uh, as, the, as the British like to do of, of Spanish colonialism 
because it is possible to conceive of um, Peruvian and Mexican um, cultures as civilizations, and they, um, whereas uh, uh, Native American uh, cultures are, are not so readily um, so conceived by, by 18th century thinkers. I think Swift has, has, has quite a strong sense even of, of, of the, of the um, uh, barbarities being um, visited upon, upon the Native, um, North American Native Indigenous peoples in Gulliver's Travels. I don't think Barclay takes on much of that. Um, is there a big connection between um, Swift and Barclay? I, I, when I was thinking about doing good and saying that Barclay wants to do good, um, I had in the back of my mind a sermon by Swift on doing good. Um, so it's so, 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 so a wonderful work of, 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 of brilliant clarity of, of, of prose uh, and, and of a uh, very direct statement. If we see that the, the kind of um, social and economic reformist that Swift is in the, in the 1720s, 1727, 28, the Drapier's Letters and Barclay's Queerist, I think we see two slightly different approaches. Um, Swift taking on the persona, quite directly challenging the government, Barclay, again, taking on a persona, but a much more oblique one, this, this persona who just asks a whole series of questions, who tries to get people to think around a subject, who isn't confrontational, but, but tries to bring people on board to, to some fairly radical ideas about, about what money and what an economy is. Um, there are certainly, there's, there, there are so many fascinating connections, but um, I'm not sure if colonialism is, is, the, is, is the one that, where I feel Barclay's most indebted to Swift. Um, well, thank you very much for uh, for this enlightening conversation and for your wonderful book um, and uh, and for joining us today. Uh, that's all the time and to everyone for the questions. Okay. Uh, that's all the time we have for for this discussion. So I'll, I'll hand things back over to to Dr. O'Neill here. Thank you so much, uh, Tom and Kenny. It's been such a pleasure to eavesdrop on this conversation during this lunchtime. Uh, we're going to draw to a close, but I want to applaud uh, both Kenny and Tom for a really provocative reading and, and really informative one uh, of Barclay's uh, life and, and thought. The book is fresh off the presses. I'm still waiting for my copy to, to arrive. And just a quick note to share that um, Princeton University Press have, have given a 25% discount to anybody who'd be interested in buying a copy of Tom's book. Um, you just need to go to their website and, and enter Tom21 into the discount code box. We'll send uh, an email with a link um, as a follow-up to this event. So don't worry if you don't catch that. As always, I want to thank the brilliant uh, Hub Events team, Francesca, Aoife, and Emily. Uh, and I'd like to note one forthcoming event that our audience today might be interested in. It's the series finale of the Out of the Ashes uh, series uh, uh, lecture. It's gonna be delivered by Richard Ovenden, uh, the librarian of the Bodleian entitled Burning the Books. And that lecture is gonna happen on Tuesday, the 25th of May um, uh, at 7 p.m. So uh, thank you so much, Tom. That was a magnificent hour uh, and one that I learned a huge amount from. And thank you also, Kenny, and to Claire for introing and asking lots of pertinent questions. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history of the Taimonia Library. As well as being heard. 
the hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.